0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this month's Exec Insight. This week it was great to spend time with Jonathan O'Halloran, founder and CEO of Quantum DX, a rapidly expanding biotech company based in Newcastle. We talked about Jonathan's early career and the journey of startup through to commercialization of a high profile medical device with global impact. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Richard Hogg, I'm the CEO of Jackson Hogg and I'm delighted to be here today with Jonathan O'Halloran, CEO and co-founder of Quantum DX, a diagnostic business based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Quantum DX has some fantastic technology which is helping with rapid detection of infectious diseases globally.
1: So Jonathan, tell me, where did the journey all begin? Oh, the journey began, was it 13 years ago? in my garage in a small um, townhouse in Sussex, uh, so yeah, that's been, it's been quite a ride. Okay, so home for you outside the region, Jonathan? or Yeah, well I grew up in Germany, Dad's in the forces, uh, and came back to the UK when I was 13, and uh, moved back to Sussex, and uh, yeah, so that's where it all started for me. Okay, so
0: how do you go from being out of the area to, to the startup with Quantum
1: DX, where did the love of Genetics began. It started at school. Okay. Yeah, I fell in love with genetics um, during my A levels, and then I did it for my uh, graduate degree, then my post grad degree. Took me to America uh, and then to Singapore, Uh, and then we started this company up, and uh, and immediately got um, funding from the South African government, and so we all moved to Cape Town. Okay. What about the football career, Jonathan? Well. Yeah, I mean, it was an illustrious career up until I was thirteen, I think. Yeah, uh, I played for a, a, a team called uh, Paderborn in Germany in the youth system, and uh, yeah, and Paderborn now in the Bundesliga, uh, but they weren't when I was playing for them. <laughs> well,
0: so across into Cape Town, you found a love of genetics. Um, why did you realise that you had a love of that subject?
1: Well, I am colourblind, I'm tone deaf, and I'm dyslexic. So her career in the arts was never on the cards for me and I really wanted to understand why uh, I had uh, all of these perceived failings uh, and so genetics was the answer to all of that. Okay.
0: It's interesting. Perceived failures can often be seen as a real advantage. Do you feel as though… Yeah, of
1: course. I mean, yeah. I see the world in a different way to everybody else, okay. both in color and, uh, and, and how I go about solving problems. Brilliant.
0: So. You've now moved to Cape Town. Um, Has the idea for Quantum
1: DX actually come along yet, or have you just started to... Yeah, so, yeah, Quantum DX had been around for a year before we moved to Cape Town. Um, It existed in my garage, you know, when I was playing around with different technologies and and chemistries and trying to get things to work. And that's where we got enough data to support the investment from the government. Uh, And then, yeah, we moved down to Cape Town. We've got a, a, a wonderful laboratory in Tigerberg Hospital, which is right in the epicenter of where drug-resistant tuberculosis first started. and That's really where I fell in love with, uh, with diagnosing TB because it's such a difficult disease to diagnose and, and, and it, it, the, the variance of the genetic sequences so much, it's, it's an incredible disease. Uh, and and that, that really honed the specifications for QPOC. You know, we wanted it to address testing of tuberculosis in the field because we saw, we saw a clear problem where, where patients in, in townships such as Kailicha outside of Cape Town were, were given the samples and they're having to then take that into the laboratories to be tested. And sometimes with culture, it takes months. So we wanted to short circuit all of that and give these people a a test for pathogen ID initially, followed by a drug resistance screen, all in a single cartridge. And that's really what QPOC developed. developed, Often people don't talk about this,
0: but when you're actually in the developing world, what is it like to see firsthand the challenges of what people are experiencing with infectious disease?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting because um, when you first go there, you, you're initially shocked because there's a culture change, but you, you, you start to, you know, see it as, as quite normal and, and usual. And, and it's at that moment, then you, you get horrified because it's become normalized to you. And you see that these people actually, they, they have very little, they live living very close together. Any infectious diseases will wipe through the, the, communities and and they don't have access to the the level of diagnostic and medical care that that we do here now in south africa it's slightly different because they are very well advanced with the way in which they treat tuberculosis and, and that sort of thing uh but when you start extrapolating that out to other nations that that aren 't as sophisticated, you, you, it really is a massive concern mm-hmm. and so that for, and for me, it was very clear what we wanted to do, and that was to to provide nations like that an ability to provide the 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 level of medical care through diagnostics that Western nations are able to do, um, but without having to invest in the infrastructure, the skilled workers, the laboratories and all that sort of thing, just technology leap with a small box that they can take out to the people and get them tested. When you were meeting these people, did you
0: genuinely believe that you could solve this problem or did it just feel
1: like a, a bit of a you know let's let's hope that we can develop tech or people ask me that all the time i had how do you because I, I mean all through my career people have been telling me i'm absolutely nuts and i'll never be able to build the kubok well i built the kubok and it's it, it's done now so, so, so slightly um, people see it as arrogance but it's not it's not arrogance it's just a, a, I just had a belief that sh- that you know by working through the problems one by one, we'll be able to get there. Mm-hmm. And we have done. I and mean, I like to it's, I mean, it's certainly not all me. The, the team here has it's, it's, it's impacted hugely. A lot of people, when they interview me, ask, So, what does it feel like to invent the QPOC? I didn't invent the QPOC. I had the initial idea, this team invented the QPOC.
0: And what would have happened if you didn't go that route of, of having a new product to, you know, because it was essentially a starter, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, but w- what would a classic, you know, route in the genetics have looked like by comparison of you going across to Cape Town?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that was, um, for me, that was never on the cards. I hated academia and just, just dreadful, not for me at all. Um, uh, I see, I find that
0: fascinating because, you know, for you to develop such a complex product <laughs> and system, you would often think you need to have come from a more academic route to have had the mental horsepower to do
1: that, but... Yeah, nah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. nah. I, I, I argue the other route. I think you get into too much of a blinkered view with when you're in academia to, to think expansively like this. Where we, we look at um, all the great inventors, um, uh, uh, Craig Ventner, for instance, Jonathan Rossberg, who invented um, um, DNA sequencing and that sort of thing. The, didn't spend much time in academia at all because they found it stifling. Because you are, you know, you, you're focusing on this foundation research which takes years and years and years, and you come out with a paper and it's worked one time, but you can't. even struggle to repeat it, and you're judged on, on papers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to be judged on my product and how well it performs in the market. Not completely.
0: So you're in Cape Town. You're working with uh, these people in the developing world. What, what was it, you know, going more into that kind of first-hand experience when you started testing? People there, were you starting to pull out the data that you needed to, you know, essentially identify
1: how you could add more value? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it's an obvious thing. You speak to you speak to your customers, you speak to your patients, you get great insight, and you understand more what is actually required. I've, I mean, I look at some of our competitors. And I look at their products and I just, you know, they've not spent the time in the field. You know, I spent six and a half years in a pathology lab um, whilst I was at um, doing my postgrad. So I know all the the shortcomings, all the shortfalls. When QPOC was taken out this year into NHS labs, they loved it. People absolutely loved it because we, We've provided, we've put deep thought into how it works, into the GUI, into the flashing lights at the front. So when you're over the side of the lab, you can see it flashing. Uh, and, when it, and when it stops flashing, you know the test is finished. So little details like that is very usable. Other competitor devices, you could just, it's you know, they've thrown it together as an engineering exercise without any thought to the end user. But having spent years out in the field, speaking to people, understanding what's needed, mm-hmm. and we've been able to create something which we think is really quite disruptive. How big is the opportunity for a product like Qpoc? Well, let's benchmark it. Um, so, what are the what are the big exits that we've seen in this field? Um, the classic one is Cepheid that's four billion. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen um, recently Moby Die for half a billion. Um, um, by fire, half a billion as well. So there, there are huge, huge exits available. You know, and you know, and you know, whilst you know, we're not necessarily entertaining that for us right now, we want to just build this product and build our customer base. I mean, that is that's really where it can go. You know, and we feel at the price point, the speed, the level of multiplexing of this device is bigger than all of those other technologies that I've just cited. And what can QPOC currently do in
0: terms of its applications and working with the patients?
1: Yeah, so right now, we've, we've clearly focused on SARS-CoV-2. And so we've got a, we've got a three-plex assay plus a control, um, so total four-plex, um, using QPCR. Uh, and that goes straight from sample to answer in 30 minutes. Uh, with very high sensitivity, mm. um, uh, which is you know being demonstrated through clinical trials that we run with the NHS and other folks, so high quality rapid PCR testing like like you can't see in the market at the moment. The closest competitors in terms of speed and accuracy would be Abbott ID now, but they don't really. Touches and sensitivity specificity. Um, Lumira DX, which is an immunoassay, but fantastic immunoassay. Again, not quite there on sensitivity. Um, everything else will take two hours. So they claim 90 minutes, but generally it takes two hours. You know, the difference between two hours and 30 minutes when you're in a, in a, in a triage situation where you've got a patient I and mean, maybe it's an emergency C-section, maybe, maybe you know, they need to be treated. I mean, we can run this in the ambulance as so they're going into the A&E. You can't wait two hours mm. for a result. And the early products with
0: Quantum DX were, were very much targeted at the developing world. Am I right in assuming that this could be used universally across a number of different?
1: Yeah, companies? absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's been designed for, uh, for LMICs. And the reason we did that was because that provided us with the strictest set of specifications that we could get. So if we then went back and, and rolled it out through the NHS, it's, the specifications are through the roof, the use case there. Um, for instance, um, each device has a has a battery on it. So it can run half a day's worth of tests on a battery if there's a power outage. It's got surge protection f- for LMIC. So if there's electrical surges, it's protected against it. We've got dust management. We can run it in different ambient temperatures, different humidities. All of this m- means that it's a highly robust system. And, you know, the whole idea was that I could throw up my backpack and run out into the field or into townships and do testing. And that's allowed us to do that. So when you, when you transfer that, that into the NHS now, you can have these on trolleys running around in A&E, people being tested quickly, um, in ambulance, test quickly before you get to A&E and that sort of thing. Really important um, stuff that's robust, rapid and can uh, do lots of different things as well. For many people that have never
0: developed a product, how hard is it to come up with that concept, actually go through that journey of, of building the team that you have at Quantum, and then actually taking that through the
1: market access into the NHS? Yeah, coming up with the concept is easy. Okay. That's a dream. At the end of the day, you, everybody can dream. They're saying, I want a Ferrari. That's okay, great, that's my dream. Now I have to make it happen. That's the hard bit. Um, and there's hard bit for several reasons. First, obviously, technologically. You know, you know, there are, as you're working through it there's certain things that you start to realize you can have one but not two you can have you can have one and you definitely can't have the other and you've got to you've got to start looking at, at honing your specifications having small deviations and that sort of thing and that's, that's difficult when you, you know you want a Ferrari and you end up with you know a Porsche you know, it's, it's still a Porsche but you really wanted the Ferrari because um, I wanted this to do sequencing as well we haven't quite got there yet but we, you know, maybe in the future. Um, so that was my Ferrari, you know, the ability to do sequencing. We'll get there one day. And what about
0: you as a CEO kind of managing that team because you haven't just got scientists in here, you've got mechanical engineers, you've got yeah. software engineers but that blend of skills is quite tricky to pull together. How have you found that journey?
1: Oh yeah I mean that's that's fun. <laughs> Dealing with lots of different disciplines and and their personalities is interesting um, but you know we we ha- we have a, a, a you know a work hard play harder attitude here at quantum dx we um, we we very much do feel like a family and um we've got we've got WhatsApp groups that were together, we have Slack, we go, we have parties and all that sort of stuff. And that's all important to bring people from different disciplines together because they've got different outlook on life and they, they think about things differently. And to get them all working together, it's, it's, it's you know, it, it needs extracurricular activities and lots of talking. And uh, so with social media is up to the hilt. We've got, the, like I said, Slack and everything like that. So everybody's constantly talking. We have town hall meetings all the time where we you know, we roll out the beers and the wine and all that sort of stuff. Um, we organize what we call SciFest. So SciFest is, you know, I think, it's every, every uh, quarter we get together and everybody presents something that they're doing. And we ask questions. We enjoy it. and Then we all get drunk. Um, proper startup stuff um, that you would expect. Um, and then, you know, from my perspective, a lot of what I do is, you know, is listening and talking and and dealing with the issues uh, as they're going on. Um, what I found, fortunately, is over time, it's that starts to self-regulate. You know, people get to understand. You know that it 's more important to to get on than it is to argue because we 've got strict deadlines that we need to hit and get on with them i think yeah so I think the hardest thing for me uh, as as a CEO is is working with um, the board and the shareholders in, in terms of getting getting them to fully understand what the challenges are in in this development that it's not it's not a linear a to b it's it's a it's a to z to b to c then you you do dart over because once you fix something that may impact something else and and in in getting getting the shareholders and and the board along on the ride understanding that this is a highly complex device and it's not going to be you know a linear thing it's it's that's that's tricky that's very tricky
0: but many people don't appreciate how hard it is to, to launch a product business. And those early years of funding, how did you manage to
1: finance your early operation? Well, I was very fortunate that I wasn't CEO at the beginning. I was a, a chief scientific officer. Um, my co-founder, Elaine Warburton, was CEO. And, and yeah, she, she could raise money in a desert. <laughs> she, she is incredible uh, when it comes to that. So, yeah, I was very fortunate in the early days that, she, you know, she could, I mean, she was yeah, doing amazing things in, turn, in terms of not just, not just raising money from, from angels, friends and family, uh, her own husband, for the love of God, <laughs> the poor guy got a big payout, and uh, and she managed to convince him to put it all into condom. Um, and then also through grants. You know, we, I remember in the early days, Elaine and I used to spend nights and weekends just writing grants, you know, and literally on the phone to each other back and forth as we're editing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got very successful at that. And so very much you know, thanks to the government support in, in supporting um, startups, we were able to really develop and get to a point where we can start attracting um, much bigger checks um, from more professional investors. Uh, which is uh, where we are
0: now, and given your time with the journey, both with the funding and the products, given your time again, w- could there have been things you would do differently if you had had the opportunity to do
1: the journey again? Um, I think we probably would have focused on less investors. And then we, I mean, we've got a, quite a healthy roster of investors at the moment. And we probably, it probably would have been better if we, if we looked at a few large investors that we could have taken on the journey. But you know, um, that wasn't to be the case for us. Um, it's, diagnostics, as you know, is very difficult to understand. Venture capital um, are supposed to take risks. In this country, they don't take risks. They're very risk-averse. And so diagnostics is tricky. And I can fully understand why. It's hard to fully understand which one of the many boxes around the world will make it and which one will win. Uh, and the only way that they can really understand that is through, through, through independent clinical data and, and commercial traction. Um, both of which we've only got this year. <laughs> so, so and before that, they tend to wait. And what we found is that that slipping into, into this the higher risk investment um, area is is not institutional investors, but but family offices, uh, and they are really um, and and, you know, and and super angels and that sort of thing. They're, they're really filling that void where once the venture capitalists um, sat. We definitely
0: know that. When we work with some of our other tech companies, we'll, we'll find the ultra high net worths will invest more for the love of the technology at times, not just purely for the return because of the greater good. But but that must really resonate the product with and and, and the application of how it can help so many people. That, that must be quite easy, is it not, to bring on new investors?
1: Or I wouldn't say it's easy. Okay. I definitely wouldn't say it's easy um, and the, the family offices and, the high and super angels are, are, are definitely getting more and more sophisticated and they do their research. It not, it's certainly not easy, but it is, it is easier because their investment cycles are, are a lot more flexible. Mm-hmm. Uh, with venture capital, you know, a three to five-year um, return on investment is a requirement. Um, that's very difficult to predict when you're in development, um, but with with um, super high net worths and with uh, the family offices, they want to be along for the journey. Yeah. And a lot of them look at it as legacy investments or f- philanthropy um, and and don't necessarily think along the same lines as a venture capitalist does. Yeah. If it resonates with them, they're in. If it, if it doesn't, they're out. Um, but they're certainly not out if, if they don't get a return in, in the three to five-year um, timeline. They, they, they can be in it for longer.
0: And 2020 was a bit of a shocker for most people, apart from life science companies. Um, obviously, we saw the great releases with Quantum DX, was 2020 a good year in terms of QPOC and, and obviously what was going on around us in terms of the release?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, COVID sent a rocket up our ass. That's for sure. Made us go from zero to hero uh, very, very quickly. We were probably about eighteen months, two years away from launch, and and we we launched in oof, from April to yeah in, in less than twelve months. And that's not just launch. That is, that is scale manufacturing to a huge capacity, um, both of the device and the cassettes. We've got multiple manufacturing lines in three different countries now. We've, we've hit a scale that's just mind boggling. We, we've done a 600 patient trial with the NHS. It shows great sensitivity and specificity. Um, and we've got the device out. It's, it is, it's been a roller coaster. Now, these people here in the office have been working um, night and day and weekends for 12 months. And it's interesting because this is not the first time I've heard this
0: story as in 2020 seemed to accelerate significantly just the rate of both that innovation but the rate at which you can commercialize, system integrate a product. Um, clearly, it can't work your stuff like that forever. There's a, you know, a finer you know, period on that. but. It was a good experience in terms of, uh, you know, being able to advance that schedule of works.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, I, I, I've been fascinated by Silicon Valley startup companies, you know, and, and the stories that you hear about them, you know, they're work burning the midnight oil, working weekends, just getting, getting their code in and, 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 and all of that. And we had, people, we had people literally living in the office. We did all of that for a year. I mean, we didn't uh, I mean, the amount of time I've spent in this office has been incredible. Mm-hmm. We've all mucked in. We've all done our own bit uh, and we've all helped and it's really brought us closer together as a team and we're a very tight-knit team now. We'd like to help each other out and um yeah, we all get all get on well. Uh so it's yeah, it's been it's been one hell of a ride. Mm-hmm. Um and at the end of it we've we've now got Q-Pock at scale which is which is really exciting for UK PLC really exciting. This is, you know, normally what happens is it gets picked off by an American company mm. and we, lo- we lose that. But because of the support through COVID, um, we don't necessarily have to lose this. So where are you manufacturing the product now
0: and how
1: many units are, are coming through annually? So QPOP we're manufacturing um, in Felixstowe with our partners Cogent. So UK built, uh, which is, which again, which is great for UK PLC, um, we, can, we can do you know, 800 devices a month um, based upon orders. So the capacity is there to go absolutely gangbusters. Um, we've got a, a, a test disposable line in Copenhagen and another one in Singapore, um, which has been really interesting setting these things up and not being able to go to Singapore. So our manufacturing team has done absolute wonders in doing that remotely. And how, did it, how hard did you find that, the transition of actually t-
0: designing and developing the product in-house to then passing it out to an outsourced manufacturing? Oh, well,
1: transition. yeah. It, from my perspective, it seemed like it, it went extremely smoothly. There were a, f- a few things that we needed to tweak here and there, but it seemed to go really smoothly. And I think that is testament to the fact that we, we brought on really top-class people. Our, man, our, our VP of manufacturing, Andy Whittle, he's been there, seen it done it. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't say it was easy, um, but he made it look easy. Uh, and, you know, that just speaks to his professionalism and his ability um, in manufacturing and, and the experience that he has. You know, and that's, that's now what we're looking for um, at Quantum is, is, is people with that, that level of experience of being there, seen it and done it uh, and can then take us to that next level. And what are your plans for Quantum
0: generally in terms of both the headcount here at Newcastle and in terms of international expansion? If I'm sat here in 10 years' time, what will Quantum DX look like?
1: Yeah, well, in, in 10 years' time, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah, we may have a few more boxes. We've got one that's um, just about to go into product development as well. So, yeah, that's, that's exciting. In terms of... Um, <laughs> yeah in terms of our plans, immediate plans, we're expanding our our commercial teams um, massively. Mm-hmm. We're starting hiring internationally as well. We've hired a couple of people in Spain, in one in France soon um, uh, and we're building out a distribution network as well um, so we're right at the start of that, and that's really is now really starting to take take off We're also um, with our, you know, with our, our our technical teams, we're transitioning them from the from the, this kind of R and D development into the more tech support um, for the sales. Uh, and like I said, we have this other box which which is um, even better than QPOC that will be coming through. Not a molecular technology, but it's a cell capture for sepsis and tuberculosis. So yeah, the future's pretty rosy. Yeah, ten years time, where will we will be? Ah, I don't know. We'll be bigger than Cepheid. <laughs> Brilliant. Um,
0: And how are your competitors responding to this product? Because when you launch anything that's clever, and I would expect this has got numerous patents on it in terms of protecting the IP, but are your competitors in the wings already trying to copy your ideas?
1: Uh, I don't know if they're trying to copy them. I think they're keeping a watching um, brief on us to see what we're going to do and 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 understand where we go in terms of our our commercial traction when we actually get out there um, with our CE marks um, later this year. Um, We, my inbox is filled with 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 other companies. Wanting to take a look at Conde DX for various reasons, whether that's partnerships or or strategic investments or whatever, so we, yeah, we are we're yeah we're very popular at the moment. We're the hot girl in the disco. That's a very good analogy. Um, And uh,
0: you've always been a very collaborative business. You've always opened yourself out to NGOs and uh, other pharma businesses. But how do you get that balance right of collaborating,
1: but not allowing people to come in and just rip off all your ideas? Uh, Well, IP, first of all, strict non-disclosure agreements uh, and contracts um, that prevent them from doing it. But even then, people were still trying try and rip you off. Uh, th- this this device takes has taken a lot of work and there's a lot of know-how on top of mm. the IP. Um so it will take somebody years to 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 rip this off. Um and it will yeah it'll be very very difficult. But we're an open and collaborative company and we you know f- what we want to do is is to work with companies such as Speedex in in um, Sydney Australia. We've um, We're working with them uh, on a number of different assays. We've just won a a grant with them as well to put their assays onto our platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're working with other companies as well, which I can't talk about at the moment, but I'm sure it will be announced soon, who are also looking at putting their assay content onto QPOP. The idea here is a box doing a single test is not that attractive. What you need is a box to do multiple tests. So expanding our menu makes QPOP more attractive. Mm-hmm. And we're a small company from the northeast of England. Uh, we, we don't have the capacity to develop lots of assays and get them through regulatory, but our partners do. Mm-hmm. And so we've identified a, a long list of partners who have assay content but don't have a point of care box who do want to get to the point of care. Yeah. Uh, and we're working with all of them. And uh, you know, I think that strategy is going to really help us differentiate ourselves in the marketplace. I mean, we can, we can do a 30-minute sample to 70-plex ASAFE. And no one else can do that. Um, and when we add content to it, it's going to make it all that better. Mm-hmm. We talked before about like 10 years
0: on with a business. If we were to try and put a number on the impact of, of people's lives at the end of this, how many lives could be Saved with a product like
1: yours? Yeah, so you know, if if we if we do get this device into um, low to middle income countries and have it impacting, for instance, so let's just take one disease, tuberculosis. Ten million people get tuberculosis every year. Um, About a tenth of them have drug resistant TB. To diagnose TB. Properly, it would take three months to diagnose drug-resistant TB. It would take uh, up to five months. Generally, people are going to die and pass it on. Mm-hmm. What we can do with uh, QPOC is we can diagnose it and de- de- determine the drug resistance in, in 30 minutes. That means you can initiate patients on the right therapeutic immediately. We've also got an assay that can predict if a patient will get active TB. So that, w- that will then allow us to prophylactically treat before they start passing on, before they start coughing. So in that one disease area, we've got two assays that could potentially Mm -hmm. reduce the burden of TB globally. So that's 10 million people a year. Now, if you extrapolate that out to other diseases, I mean, the the impact could be huge. And we firmly believe that prevention is better than cure. Mm -hmm. So if we prevent somebody from developing active TB, they're not gonna pass it on. And so it's thinking like this, thinking outside of the box, thinking about how we can impact different pathways Mm -hmm. um, that will make the big difference. So, yeah, millions of people. I think that's just truly wonderful. And uh, I guess working
0: in a team, which is developing technology that can save lives. I mean, I know there's other businesses doing that, but it, it's truly wonderful in terms of the end goal of, of where the technology is going. Um, I've once heard you talk about the Internet of Life and data points and cloud. How has all that progressed alongside the development of QPOC?
1: Yeah, so well, qpoc has got an antenna on it. It's got the chipset that allows you to send data via um, hardwire with a USB cable, um, with Bluetooth, with um, over the Wi-Fi, 2G, 3G, 4G is highly connected. And and we've got great grand ideas about developing dashboards so that you can then send anonymized and geostamp data into the cloud because these things are going to be on the back of trucks, for instance. So they're going to be on the back of mopeds and running around. And what you want to be able to do is send all of that data into the cloud so you're tracking real time. The emergence of a, of of an of an end, uh, pandemic or something like that. But what I was really interested in is using it for smart antimicrobial stewardship. So again, we'll go back to South Africa because this is where all of these ideas came from. Um, for instance, if, if we are doing a drug-resistant or drug-resistant marker screen of tuberculosis on patients in Cape Town and Durban and you start seeing a, a lot of positive um, patients that have got drug resistance for f- all first-line therapies, then you know that in Durban, you need to ensure that the second-line therapies are there. Whereas in Cape Town, you're not seeing that. You can, you can just stay with the first-line therapies. And they're big cities. Now, if you're thinking about taking that out into the rural areas, that's going to be really important because in the rural areas, you're going to have a small clinic. It may or may not have electricity. It certainly won't have a fridge. And you want to be able to know what drugs should be there because if you've got somebody who's got drug resistant TB, they will then have to go into Durban to get their, their, their drugs. But if you're beaming all this stuff up, you know that you need to get the drugs to them. And that changes everything. And I think that you know, this patient-centric view of the world, making it easier for them, will make it easier for us to start controlling these diseases. It's interesting,
0: isn't it? You know, Back in the day when you're talking about Cape Town, you, know, you would never have known that cloud technology would have grown at the rate yeah. that it has done. And, and actually those things in parallel to, to actually being able to get all that, those data points and you know, those predictive behaviours and, and actually the number of data scientists and analysts that we... You know, recruit as a business now that it's such a different world compared to 10 years ago.
1: No, it absolutely um, is. So, yeah. but, but interestingly, even 10 years ago, um, and this is how sophisticated um, the scientists are back in, in South Africa, they were already thinking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I and mean, they, they were networking gene experts, so albeit only in the lab and not, not, not using geostamping, but they were networking. Um, and it was, it was just fascinating because they were then able to look at, at a dashboard at any one time and know how many people are testing positive for rifampicin for, um, resistant TB at any one time. And, you know, and when you think about that, I mean, that's, that's incredible. And it was just a small leap then to, to to think, well, if these are actually going out and you just geostamp it, then you've got a really accurate idea of the dynamics of these infections. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely. And
0: just coming back to 2020 and linking that to the, to the wider kind of pharmaceutical industry, do, do you think with antibiotics and uh, do you think we're going to see a more increased investment in, in antibiotics and development from these larger drug companies over the next few years, given what we've seen over the last year of 2020?
1: I think there's going to be more funding available. Okay. I think the business models need to be addressed. Uh, because they're not quite there yet, I don't don't fully understand how a how a pharmaceutical company can get a return on investment mm. from developing a new anti-infective. Now, um, there's there are lots of people out there, John Rex, for instance, and and uh, Dame Sally Davis, who are working on lobbying for um, for. For different business models, whether whether that is um, pharmaceutical companies get a prize at the end of it, so if they get to market, they get a you know, they get a billion pounds or something like that, which which will incentivize them to do the development or whether or not there is a patent extension which will allow them to get a return on the investment over a longer period of time or, or other business models but something something has to happen to to because they 're businesses i mean you know at the end of the day the, the bottom line needs to you it needs to look healthy. And if you're throwing 10 billion into, a, into an anti-infective and you're only going to make a billion at the end of it, it's just that they're not going to do it. Um, so that needs to be addressed but that's you know there are smarter people than me working on that and do you find that you will listen to because you must have a you know you talk about your end customer
0: you've got intimate knowledge of the the demand for your product and how that links in with obviously the treatment of infectious diseases. do do you feel as though you you have the ear of government if you want to add value to what's actually going on on the
1: ground yeah yeah no absolutely I mean I yeah I've I can definitely speak to um, people in the government the department of health uh, about all this sort of stuff which is um, which is great uh, but you know at the end of the day the, it's the fundamental um, economics of 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 infectious disease treatment and diagnosis are just they're just they're tricky at best um, and when you think about a treating clinician they've got a they've got a five pound um, anti-infective therapy and they have to run a 30 pound test to decide whether or not they're going to use it or not they just they just they're going to give it because they just do that's just the way it is that needs to change we need we need government to to leave from the front and say you can't you can't prescribe a drug unless you've had a companion diagnostic mm-hmm. Unless you know that, that, that what you're about to give will work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's, it, it's tricky because the value of diagnostics is not readily seen in, in hospitals and in government and all that sort of stuff. What I hope now, thanks to COVID, is that it, 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 it has changed. We suddenly have started to see that, that diagnostics is, is going to be important. Mm-hmm. And not just for COVID, but for everything. Uh, so yeah, fingers crossed that, that that keeps going. Although the media seems to have dropped the whole diagnostic diagnostic piece and is focusing on the vaccines, but uh, yeah, once the Indian variant hits these shores, they will soon change their tune.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and you know,
0: thinking as as time goes on, what what could other businesses or people do to support a business
1: like Quantum DX? Well, they could buy QPOX. Okay. Absolutely. So it's the hospitals with the NHS? So hospitals, any business. I mean, lateral flows are, are, are great technologies when used right. And the right use case for lateral flows is when there's a high prevalence of an infectious disease um, within a pandemic, um, where you want to start cutting down the, the number of, of positive patients um, stopping that chain of transmission bit by bit. But when you're at low prevalence like we are now, they're next to useless, mm. absolutely pointless. So what you actually need is PCR because PCR is more sensitive. And so you're able to the pick up those rare cases earlier. And so when you're, when you're in an office building, for instance, if you're in you going to have a board meeting where there's lots of heated debate and everybody's shouting and you're in the closed room, do you really want to rely on a lateral flow test? Or do you want something that's more definitive like PCR? So, so for us, we see a big market in that kind of thing. And, and obviously, schools, travel industry, et cetera, et cetera. And what
0: about wider investors, NGOs? Do, do you need any more support from or distributors? Is there anyone else you need from the wider community to, yeah. to increase the growth of your
1: business? Yeah, like I said, we're building a distribution network at the moment. So we're talking with lots of distributors throughout the world. Um, uh, yeah, so that's going to be very important for our next phase. Mm-hmm. In terms of um, investment, um, we're, we're looking both at strategic investment uh, as well as uh, more institutional investors at this moment in time. You know, we've got to that point where, where the risk is off the table from a technical perspective and very soon from a commercial pers- perspective. So uh, institutional investors will be, will be more interested in investing us to help us scale. Um, and so that will be the next uh, next thing for us, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, other than, other than that, we're pretty, you know, we feel we feel home free right now. It's a, we're, it's
0: in a very good position. Absolutely, you can tell that from everything. You know, the, the team building, obviously. You know, all the wonderful things we see this release. And so it's a really exciting journey. Tell me, Jonathan, if, um, if we weren't sat here chatting about QPOC and, and all the skills that you've gained over your experience, and obviously you're very humble about talking about your strengths and weaknesses, what skills do you have now that would lend themselves to other businesses? I, if you weren't doing Quantum DX, what else would you be doing in life? I'd be a bum.
1: <laughs> this is all I can do. That's interesting. But I do, Mainly because this is all I want to do. Okay. I have a very strict, when I look when I got a very strict view of the world and and, and I hate I hate doing stuff that I don't like doing. Um, and so football didn't work out for me, uh, but genetics has. So I would be building a box or building a assay, um, and 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 it would be in science and I would not be doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, you've
0: got a fantastic business here with Quantum DX, I'm very excited to see how it's all going to play out over the next few years and I look forward to meeting again in due course, but Jonathan thank you so much for your time. Cheers, I appreciate it, thank Thank you. you. Cheers, bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast and I hope you gained some insight from Jonathan's journey. Jackson Hogg is an absolute talent management partner specialising in the engineering, manufacturing and technology sectors in the UK, USA and Germany. To find out more about our full suite of services, please visit our website at www.jacksonhog.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the iTunes store so that we can reach more people around the world.